Greetings, everyone. Thanks for coming. We'll see how we like this setting. Uh, uh, it lends itself more to di dialogue, I think. We'll see what happens. Um, if I haven't got your name yet, I'll ask you again. Um, actually, I got almost everybody's, but I forgot your name. Steve. Steve. Welcome. Welcome. Good. Good. So, um, anybody here who wasn't here last time? Okay. So, just to recap, we are uh, studying the, um, some of the words of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Uh, there, oh, by the way, there was a question about Boober last time. Who asked that question? <coughs> was it you, Steve? No. Susan Oppenheim. Oh, Susan. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, looked, I was reading his biography. Boober actually gave him his first, one of his first jobs. They were like totally uh, connected in, in Germany. So that was interesting to read about. He, was, he wrote about it. Uh, uh, they, they had some many intense discussions. That was nice to find out. Uh, he was, um, I call this a prophet for our times, because his words, when we talk about a prophet in the Jewish tradition, we're not talking about someone who's predicting the future. A prophet is a keeper, uh, a prophet is, in the Jewish tradition, someone who's a spokesperson for the God of Sinai. That's what a prophet is. Uh, who, whose role in society is to be a, um, a moral um, exhorter, chastiser, encourager, cajoler, um, and to stand up for the covenant with the creator of the universe. Because we human beings, the role of the prophet in Jewish life is that Human beings, by nature, get preoccupied with the... Um, would somebody give Jerome a hand? He's going to get a red chair, which is more comfortable for him. Thanks. Ron's doing it. Great. A prophet is someone for whom the covenant between Israel and God, this idea that we have a moral responsibility to be more than just, just uh, um, uh, striving, uh, um, you know, hungry uh, bundles of life, you know, that there's something beyond that that makes us human. Uh, and that because we are usually preoccupied with simply living, um, and uh, also we are all afflicted with uh, and have by necessity egos that can forget that we are not the end of the line, but uh, the part of the part of the great chain. Um, the prophet's job is to remind us of that. And Heschel's a prophet. He stands clearly in that lineage. So last week, we read a piece uh, that he gave 
at the, uh, at the first national conference on religion and race, on uh, racism as an evil. And so I looked through more of the articles. Yes? Did you turn that on? I didn't see you turn it on. It's yes, red. I did. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for asking. This time I was looking through this book, and I looked at another essay called To Grow in Wisdom. Um, I put on the back where it was from. A paper presented to the 1961 White House Conference on Aging. January 9th, 1961. So, uh, um, uh, I, reading this one, we're all aging. So, um, it's particularly pertinent. <laughs> and uh, I want to, uh, uh, so it's written some 55, 56 years ago, and uh, it addresses the problem of getting old and of how our society treats that. And I thought, once again, this would be a topic that uh, I just was drawn to it. So uh, we're going to read it, and we're going to stop. We're going to talk, reflect. Let this be a springboard for our own reflections and see what Heschel has to offer us today. And as I also said last week, one of the things that makes Heschel a particularly potent Jewish teacher for today is that everything he did was so completely grounded in uh, his, his, in his uh, astonishing Jewish background and education that it's just the language he speaks, it's the water he swims in. And so, uh, as uh, we were just saying, he doesn't, he's not superimposing some kind of progressive or humanist or uh, liberal version of events and then choosing the texts of Judaism to fit his view. For him, this is what Judaism is teaching. And uh, I find that to be very uh, a guidepost for me as I want to promote Judaism in the world. I feel like he's a great teacher of that, of a universalist and humanist vision of Judaism that he finds inherent in the very heart of our tradition. Uh, so let's read. I see the sick and the despised the defeated and the bitter, the rejected and the lonely. I see them clustered together and alone, clinging to a hope for somebody's affection that does not come to pass. I hear them pray for the release that comes with death. I see them deprived and forgotten, masters yesterday, outcasts today. What we owe the old is reverence. But all they ask for is consideration, attention, not to be discarded and forgotten. What they deserve is preference, yet we do not even grant them equality. One father finds it possible to sustain a dozen children, yet a dozen children find it impossible to sustain one father. Perhaps this is the most distressing aspect of the situation. The care for the old is regarded as an act of charity rather than as a supreme privilege. Let's just pause right there. Um, I've talked to many people who found them, who, because 
they understood it was their obligation to care for an elderly parent or relative, upended their lives, and uh, did whatever it took. And then have always said at the end, even if it's a relief that the end has finally come, that this was a privilege, right? Uh, that's the, not easy, not, but that, uh, that, that the act of engaging in that way with their lo elderly loved one was, uh, if we started to think about it as a pain, a burden, an obligation, in most cases, I don't want to generalize because every experience is different. Um, have some of you uh, have any reflection when you read that line, the care for the old is regarded as an act of charity rather than as a supreme privilege? I'll read a little more. In the never-dying utterance of the Ten Commandments, the God of Israel did not proclaim, honor me, revere me. He proclaimed instead, revere your father and your mother. There is no reverence for God without reverence for father and mother. So anyway, I just wonder, has anyone had that experience uh, of caring for a parent? And, uh, well, you know I did. I know. I just don't want to force anybody to talk, but <laughs> I mean, it was, a, it was a Herculean effort. Yeah, I dropped my life for about six months at the end. And would you do it differently? No. And Dave wasn't a perfect dad. <laughs> but yes well it's good to be able to laugh after a while isn't it but then you can look yourself in the mirror right and know you did the right thing uh, what we've done to old age in our society is perhaps starting to change in some regard that consciousness shifting do you think it is Mm -hmm. And what you said, Gwen, about the last six months, that was in the dying stage, more or less. That's where the gift is. The day-to-day -day burden, responsibility, and chore of taking care of somebody is huge. And we do all have busy lives, and we all can't drop our lives the way Gwen was able to. And that's why we have assistance and organizations and agencies and others to pull upon, but it's not like it was in his day when the families all took care of each other. We well, it's 1961, or did, or didn't. Lori, between reverence for the old and then care for the dying. Yeah, uh, I think that's important to note. Yes? I, there was, there's a difference, I think, uh, to some degree today compared to when Heschel wrote this. At that time, uh, most of the people here would have been considered really elderly. Like the very well, old. Uh, I mean, today, if you're in your 70s, most people in their 70s don't consider themselves old. And so in Heschel's day, he was probably talking the majority of cases 40 and 50-year-olds 
taking care of 60 and 70 year olds. You know, now I, you've got 70 some odds taking care of 90 <laughs> or 100 year olds. It's really true. It's really true. It's really changed that way. I mean, Social Security was, uh, uh, when it was created, was because nobody lived much longer into their, if you lived well into your retirement, you were an anomaly. That's right. Now it's a whole different ballgame, which I'm grateful for. I'm looking forward to many more years. Yeah. Yeah. Nishama? What I'm thinking about is myself, who uh, at my age, and I'm aware of needing more help from my kids than I ever did, uh, I consider it charity what they do. I have a hard time seeing that it's an act of respect and an obligation to me. Intellectually, I, I believe that because I know how I was with my parents. I was very respectful. Mm -hmm. But I, my kids still see me as, you know, a chipper kid who can take care of herself. And so for me to recognize that it's not out of charity, but there, I do believe there is that, but it's hard to convey it. Right, right. And it would be hardest for the but parent to convey it. it to the children. <laughs> but I need to feel it. I need to yeah. feel not mm -hmm. guilty and mm -hmm. apologetic mm -hmm. for needing help. Mm -hmm. Barb? We're just going through a process right now because my mother's been living independently in South Carolina all by herself Same in her own home. She is uh, going to be 103 in September. Wow. And yeah. <laughs> and by the way, she watches Fareed every week. She listens to PBS, watches PBS every night, the news hour. She's writing the mm. difference between Trump as a president and the presidents that she knew. Mm. I mean, she's very active mentally, but she's going blind and she needs more and more care. And we've just been through a huge process. And I think. Was it Laura? Lori. Lori had a good point that we talked about assisted living. We went and looked at places around here, and it just sort of freaked us out, thinking of her as this really independent person who doesn't want to, who doesn't want to leave her home. And, um, you know, thinking, should we upend our lives, remodel our downstairs, bring her up here where she doesn't want to come? <laughs> so complicated. You know, it's really right, right. If... It, you know, my, my grandparents and all their siblings and cousins all lived in the metropolitan area. It was just a different time. It's really true. Yeah. But even in the metropolitan area, you know, we, as my grandparents got older, in the time Heschel's writing about, it became, you had to have something major going on in your life. When I was um, a young teen or something, you went to Grandma and Grandpa's for su on Sunday night. Mm -hmm. you know, and we brought deli over with them, mm -hmm. to them, and my parents made a point. We bought enough that we left them with a refrigerator full of leftovers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not because they had monetary need, but because we were taking the burden of shopping and everything else off of them. And after my grandfather, Alatashalom, died, my father, you know, we had a loft in Manhattan. And my father told my grandmother, we'll renovate this way and that way and you'll move in with us. He was so worried about her being on her own. And she refused it, but... Hmm. But she was living in Manhattan where everything in the world can be delivered in a doorman building. Good. Doormen are good. <laughs> if you can afford a doorman building. It's true. It's true. And I think there's a lot more attention paid in the media of every kind that, uh, of um, uh, attention to uh, caretaking is very hard. Here's a, 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 a class or an organization that just helps caretakers because they recognize how difficult it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Esther? There are many organizations now that exist that didn't exist 
in the 60s, for example, is staying in place. Staying right. in place is a, I, I don't know if it's a national organization, but there are, there's one in Woodstock, there's one in Saugerties, there's one in Kingston, um, where, where the, um, the push is to help older people stay in their own homes and to provide services um, that people need, such as right. taking people to the doctor or shopping or right. carpentry or whatever. Yeah. Right. A lot of good efforts. Let's read on. In Jewish tradition, the honor for father and mother is a commandment, the perfect fulfillment of which surpasses the power of man. There is no limit to what one ought to do in carrying out this privilege of devotion. God is invisible, but my mother is his presence. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And citing that, what he said in another essay on children and youth, I just wanted to, to uh, share this with you. Um, listen to this paragraph. You don't have it in front of you. Because <clears throat> he's talking about what this revere or honor thy mother and fa thy father is about. Um, the mainspring of, mainspring of tenderness and compassion lies in reverence. We could stay with that phrase for a long time. Reverence. It's a beautiful word to revere. It is our supreme educational duty to enable the child to revere. The heart of the Ten Commandments is to be found in the word, revere thy father and thy mother. Without profound reverence for father and mother, our ability to observe the other commandments is dangerously impaired. But now he changes gears. The problem we face, the problem I as a father face, is why my child should revere me. Unless my child will sense in my personal existence acts and attitudes <clears throat> that evoke reverence, for example, the ability to delay satisfactions, to overcome prejudices, to sense the holy, to strive for the noble, why should she revere me? Reverence for parents is the fundamental form of reverence, for in the parent is incarnated the mystery of man's coming into being. And rejection of the parent is a repudiation of the mystery. Only a person who lives in a way which is compatible with the mystery of human existence is capable of evoking reverence in the child. Yeah. <laughs> Only a person who lives in a way which is compatible with the mystery of human existence, mm, okay. is capable of evoking reverence in the child. The basic problem is the parent, not the child. Mm. That's what he says in this essay. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I just thought it was a beautiful paragraph, especially this line. Um, the problem we face, the problem I as a father face, is why my child should revere me. Mm. That's the right question. You know, I was talking with, uh, I got to catch up with a good friend yesterday. <clears throat> I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. And um, we were talking about our kids. And uh, that the best thing we can do for our kids is be the best people we can be. Uh, live according to our values, you know, you know step up and... You know, not just in, out in the world, but also the spiritual values we want to want to. That that's the best thing we can do, 
because we can't make them do it, uh, but we can model it and offer it. And so we were just talking about that yesterday. Laurie? <laughs> no, this is rhetoric, Lori. Yeah. This is this is this is a speech. It's not. He's not talking social science. He's not. He's talking to each person in the room. He's giving a keynote address, and he's saying to them, "Problem's not your kid. You focus on your own." Right. That's all. You follow what I'm saying? I do. This is not a. This is this is preaching. This is this is. Right, that's not what he means. Okay. Yeah, I, I have a little problem with what he just read. Yeah. I, I mean, I can understand his saying, as parents, we have an obligation to be the best that we can be. The best human beings, yeah. But he, he, it's almost like he's saying, if you didn't do a really good job and then you're old and your kid doesn't care for you, he's got an out. He didn't, he doesn't... Oh, right, and that's not what he's... You're having a similar reaction to Lori. I understand. I understand. Um, I hear him saying as an exhortation, so um, the the issue that you face is how you recognize the eminence of, you know, your own self. Uh, We, not that a cause and effect per se, Um, that uh, what do I need to do so that I'm worthy of this commandment to be honored. Whether I get honored or not is not necessarily guaranteed. Uh, so I hear you, I hear you, but I wouldn't get too caught up in that either. He, if you read Heschel overall, he, he, he's, not, um, he's not a harsh judge in that regard. He's not, not making those kind of claims. Gwen? Manus Friedman, the Chabad teacher of women. I went, it's going on an adult retreat he was doing, but I happened to be there at the end of a retreat for college-age young women. Mm-hmm. And he was talking on honor your mother and father to them. So he's talking to young women who are probably just coming out of the height of rebellion against parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was giving them the classic orthodox example that you should never sit in a parent's chair. Uh-huh. You know, that you have to honor your parents. And, and he has all these kids having fits at them. And he made a real distinction. I remember one young woman talking about the fact that her parents wanted her to study one thing and she wanted to study something different. And he's like, you know, you have to honor your parents, he told her. You have to speak respectfully to them. That doesn't mean you have to do everything they say. <laughs> good answer, Fred. That's very good. <laughs> well, you know, when we're on, he's writing at a moment when uh, the parent-child relationship is shifting. The classic authority of the father <laughs> is shifting in the 60s to, you know, being like uh, child-centered. And so there's a lot of cultural shifts that have gone back and forth. I, um, we always study the Ten Commandments with the Barn Bat Mitzvah class. And we get to this one, and I say, what does that mean? <laughs> and we always have a great discussion about it. Um, uh, there's always more than one answer to a, a one-liner in the Torah, right? Uh, 
and we'll talk about that, but uh, later, maybe today. But uh, yes, Marta. I just want. Um, I feel like if one has a parent who whose character really is not worthy of reverence, that there is a still a sort of deep surrender possible on the part of the child, even if they haven't been cared for, and that's engaging in the mystery in a really different way. If you have a parent, you know. Like my generation, I know many people who didn't grow up with their fathers at all, mm -hmm. and then take care of their fathers. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's a very—it's it, not a feeling of reciprocity. Even it's a—it's a feeling of, of of a really deep surrender. Ah, nicely put. So when we consider this commandment, on one level. Uh, and also we have to consider also all the different kinds of families, families with adopted children, families whose birth parents, they don't, you know, it's all kinds. So we can't, we always have to like think very broadly about this. But on one level, whoever birthed you, has give, you came, your life came through them. Even that, you know, that's why, you know, in the commentaries on the Ten Commandments, they say, how come the first four commandments are about our relationship with God, and the fifth commandment is about our parents, and then the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth are all about how we're supposed to be with other human beings. Why is the parent one on the right-hand side? And it's, it's the bridge between relationship with God and relationship with others. Yes, the bridge between relationship with God and relationship with others, whether it's the, uh, whether it's the, uh, the mystery of our very creation through parents, right? Or the, the astonishing, uh, the fact that we wouldn't survive without nurturance. And sometimes that's not our birth parent who gives that to us. But even that, you know, when I, oh boy, I was watching a, uh, uh, a I had a lot of fun on Sunday. I got to see uh, someone I know pretty well who ha has a new baby who's about, not so new, about 18 months. And this mom is the absolute center of that child's universe, as it should be. You know, wanders off 20 feet, mama, you know, and right back again. And it's all quite astounding, actually, when you think about it. And then there's the question we ask in, in class. I remember we had one, one bar mitzvah class many years ago where actually two of the fathers in the class were in jail. And so how do you honor, you know, and I, and we had an incredible discussion about that. I mean, what I, the takeaway I remember is live your life in a way that would bring honor to your parent. Uh, that would be a way, and that was a great answer for everyone at that moment because it wasn't about, well, what if the parent is really not honorable? You know, so we've had lots of discussions about this, but that's what Torah study is, right? Torah study gives us a line Honor your father and your mother that you may live long on the good land. And uh, um, that's the line. What does that mean? <laughs> well, that's, that, the rest is commentary, right? That's what makes it a living document. So uh, anyway, let's go on. Father and mother are always older, more advanced in years. But is being advanced in years to be considered an advance or a retreat? Ours is a twin problem, the attitude of society to the old and old age, 
as well as the attitude of the old to being old. The typical attitude to old age is characterized by fear, confusion, absurdity, self-deception, and dishonesty. It is painful and bizarre. Old age is something we are all anxious to attain. However, once attained, we consider it a defeat, a form of capital punishment. In enabling us to reach old age, medical science may think that it gave us a blessing. However, we continue to act as if it were a disease. More money and time are spent on the art of concealing the signs of old age than on the art of dealing with heart disease or cancer. <laughs> you find more patients in the beauty parlors than in the hospitals. We would rather be bald and gray, a white hair is an abomination, being old is a defeat, something to be ashamed of. Authenticity and honesty of existence are readily exchanged for false luster, for camouflage, sham, and deception. Esther? Both of my parents died young. My father was 67, my mother was 72. Um, I consider it a privilege to be 81 mm -hmm. and to have a good life. I didn't think that I would reach this age. And so I, I don't have good. Those, those feelings. And I'm just wondering how many of us don't have those feelings about reaching whatever age you are that I think it's an old, this is an old statement. It's a statement of long ago. Good. I don't know that it truly reflects people who are living now and oh, are in their 70s. I was in the health food store. I asked for my senior discount. A woman in front of me who had already asked, she said, I would give anything not to have to be at this mm. age where I asked. Mm. I felt sorry for her, but yeah. that, I hear that yeah, that is. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. And by the way, uh, I wanted to read this so we would talk yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah. I, can't, I can't understand why people won't give their age. I mean, yeah. I grew up saying how old I am, and I'll still say how old I am. Yeah. And I did not get that from my mother, and I'll tell you why. When she was in the, uh, assisted living, and she turned 95. Mm. And we made a party for her in the assisted living. And you know, a lot of the relatives were there and people were passing by. And we said, it's her birthday, she's 95. Mm. And my mother called me over and she says, Mom, you don't have to tell everybody how old So, So this may be an area where things have shifted uh, <laughs> substantially. Yes, Phoebe. I just wanted to say, I'm 91, and once I started sort of acknowledging that I was getting old, I find it fascinating. I mean, I've been lucky. I've got my wits still about me, yeah. even though I totter around and can't see very well. But it's fascinating to get old and, and go through yeah. these changes and yeah. see how other people find exactly. uh, you know, contemporaries deal mm -hmm. with it. So, and I'm fortunate to be uh, to be taken care of by my daughter. Who is, it hasn't become a Herculean task yet, but mm. <laughs> it may. Thank you, Phoebe. Thank you. Well, you know, and my mom is. Uh, I just saw her on uh, Sunday, and she's gotten to the point where she can't really take care of herself anymore, and um, for a woman who was incredibly competent and driven. I mean, um, she is 
pissed off and um, very frustrated and, you know, but then she kind of pulls it together on a good day and says, uh, on, on, a, on, a, on a day when she's not depressed, she'll say to me, you know, since I'm not depressed today, watching all this happen is kind of interesting. <laughs> um, which is the most enlightened perspective you could have to say, well, this is what's happening, let's right. look at it. Uh, to watch me kind of lose my faculties and... And she was in such an, had so much equanimity that day. That's all I wish for her since she's doing everything she can to keep going in life. Um, but uh, uh, so she oscillates between fr- just bitter frustration and acceptance um, is how I'm experiencing it right now. Yeah. Miriam? My mother's going to be 100 in August. Wow. Oh. And uh, she has pretty far advanced dementia. She, she's mm. legally blind, um, but she still enjoys life. Yeah. And uh, she has AIDS 24-7. She can't, also can't stand up, so she has to be lifted on a Hoya lift, and uh, you know, everything has to be done for her. She, we sit on the porch sometimes, and she has a view of the mountains and everything. She can just barely see. She has macular degeneration, so she can't see my face. She can, but she has the peripheral vision. And she once said, well, if you're going to have to lose some part of it, it's better to keep the peripheral vision because you still have the mountains. <laughs> and this is the way she is. She's, she just finds a positive way to look at things, you know, and she, uh, also I have to say that hospice has been wonderful. She's been on hospice for five months, and I'm afraid they're going to kick her off because she's <laughs> doing so well, you know, but, uh, and they are wonderful, and um, they have music therapists who comes and, and sings old songs with her, and it's, it's great. And I got to sing with her, yeah. To come and sing with us, too. Um, but she also, there's a tree that in the, it's a circular driveway and there's a tree in the middle and it's, it's, it's like a symbol of old age. All these limbs fall off. And she looked at the tree and she could barely see. And she said, but it's so nice that there's still a limb on this side so we have the green that I can see. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, uh, I learned so much from her because she is, is able to, I mean, she's all acceptance. Right. She's just all acceptance. She never expresses any kind of frustration. Sometimes she gets some anxiety, which apparently is very normal. But uh, she is a, a, a wonderful role model, I have to yeah. say. It's not hard to revere her at all. Huh. Yeah. That's a blessing. Yeah. Avis, did you want to share something? retired physical therapist and I worked with the senior citizens for years and years and years. And the wisdom, that's why I love this word, the wisdom that comes from some of these seniors who have experienced so much in their lives is something that 
I mean, you can write books and books and books and books and books, a whole library filled, because each one has gone through a different, different phases and experiences in their life. But one of the difficulties, as we all know, it's almost like they have a checklist in front of them of what I can't do anymore. Right. And it's like things are being taken away. I can even see it myself, like I can't play tennis anymore because of my back. And this checklist gets longer and longer and longer. And this is how, I guess, as a, the generation who hopefully will be able to participate in their parents' or friends' aging processes, how to kind of make up for that checklist of having these things taken away, and how to figure out how they can continue to experience the life that they want to live. They're going to talk to her mother. Yeah. Well, mother, yes. Like my mother but it's true. thought she was going to live for <coughs> and she did live to be. She missed um, 101 by... Uh, so many old, old yeah, folks. Yeah, she missed amazing. it by uh, two and a half months. She wanted to live longer. So, and she lived, and I, I think one of the things that I'm listening to and and I already see that in the 60s when this was written, it was that beginning of that period when families were becoming more mobile. Correct. And they weren't living Correct. in a family unit any longer. Which called for a conference on aging. It's like, what are we doing with right. our... Yeah. yeah. And so therefore, then the social workers and family counselors and aging counselors, they were able to, all of, they were able to then commence their work and to form these establishments and retirement centers, et cetera, to start making up for the lost family unit. Mm -hmm. And it took that generation, because I can already see this huge generation difference of how aging is handled now mm -hmm. versus in the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. because they hadn't yet, how can I say it, not invented, but these extended care centers uh -huh. so that this particular period that's why I think it's kind of almost it, this is very dated uh -huh. very dated yeah. very dated because they went through that period after World War II then there was that generation that was kind of missing out on how that the family unit was no longer there and now they begin to replace it but with paid people or whatever, but it still has, it's begun. So, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. therefore it's easier for, like, it was much easier for me to be very, very close with my parents when they lived in these centers, but I was working. Mm -hmm. I lived in New York, they lived in Boston. So, but I went every two weeks mm -hmm. to see them. So that, that's why it's changing and that I, I, I but I still understand there's still the respect and the reverence of your parents. And if you have that gift of being able to, now it's a matter of money, unfortunately. Right. But if you have that gift to be able to help your parents or they planned it, it's a lot easier to. That's true. The question will remain, which he will then get to, is. But if you're the person who's growing old, what 
is asked of you. you know, is this the end of life or is this the culmination, the, the pinnacle? You know, and that's still true, is where do we play? In, a, in, in more traditional societies, the elders earned their place as the wisdom keepers and counselors of the community. That role was taken away in our society, which still idolizes youthfulness, right? So the societal kind of uh, position of elder, well, Ellen has studied all this stuff with the aging and saging programs that she's been certified in, which is trying to reclaim that quality. What does it mean to be an elder? And what is the wisdom an elder has that you could never have gotten if you hadn't made it this far? Well, uh, uh, let me say one more thing about that, Marka. Um, because I feel like turning 60 last year, I'm just sort of starting to, oh, this is a whole different perspective on the world, yeah. right? I couldn't have been, had this perspective earlier in my life because I just couldn't. I was in that perspective. And what would it mean to venerate and raise up this perspective as something that younger generations would continue to revere, right? The way we, that is something that I don't think has changed that much. Um, and we'll read on and see what we think. Marka. Well, the word that keeps jumping out at me that is speaking to that is mastery, that we're still sort of in, engaged in this will towards mastery. That's why we idolize the young. There's still a sense of mastering. And when you were talking about your mom, the oscillation between what I can master and what I can be grateful for. I mean, it sounds like Miriam's mother has found a way to just really engage in, you know, tiny beautiful things and gratitude for the small. But when you're engaged in mastery, you know, you have to have it all in a way. So it's been very interesting to me, you know, growing up partially disabled and then with a lot of disabled people, the people who are the most disabled are way happier because there's not a sense that they're gonna go out and conquer the world. Whereas for me, I oscillate between bitterness because my abilities are always being taken, you know. Oh, so not only age, but disability yeah. might also force you early to learn those lessons. Mm -hmm. Right. about what's available to you and how to live that life with fullness. Uh, I mean, I think partly the reason I hang out with people in their 70s is because I've been disabled, you know, because I don't know other people in their 30s who do that because they're still trying to be masters of the world mm -hmm. <laughs> and be successful. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Um, uh, Jerome, <laughs> you're, wait, you're too young for this class. <laughs> Right. No, 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 no. Phoebe's ninety-one. Uh, oh, hey, Jerome. Jerome. Jerome, did you hear what Nishama said? She said, "Don't tell him how old." I'm kidding. Right. My grandfather, my father's father, uh, we all lived in Brooklyn 
in those days when I was a young boy. And every Friday night, everybody went to Grandpa's house. And Grandpa would stand by the door with his hand out. He had nine children, and each son or son-in-law, everybody was married, of course, each son or son-in-law would deposit a little money in his hand as they walked into the house. This was the days before Social Security. Right. And that was why he had a big family. So then when he was ready, he was a retired tailor. When he was ready to retire, he would have all these children his retirement. And I must say, my children have been wonderful as they get older and very caring and helping in every way they can. So I'm very grateful for that. And I think I'd like to see more people do a second bar mitzvah like I did mm -hmm. and share some of that. Because the second bar mitzvah is so different from the first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> that's right. Jerome, let me just share. There is a Jewish custom. Because it says in the Psalms, three score and ten a man is given, four score if strong, that, and that King David lived to be 70, that that's considered to be in, in, in traditional Judaism, the lifespan. So there, a tradition emerged that if you reached 83, you're 13 again, <laughs> and you, have, you can have a second bar mitzvah. Go on. But it gives you a chance at that second bar mitzvah share the wisdom that you attain through the lifetime, with, in my case, with my children and grandchildren. So uh, it's, it's a wonderful place to be sometimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it isn't. There are days you wonder why I bother, the days that I said that. Mm -hmm. They're really wonderful. Mm -hmm. So have, one thing we can yeah. be grateful for is something like Medicare, because Medicare spends untold amounts of money to keep us alive. I just went through a, a heart, trans, heart valve transplant and the hospital bill was like $70,000, you know? And, uh, Medicare pays it. If we had no Medicare, we wouldn't be able to do all these things, so Medicare is really the instrument that keeps the scene going. Mm, thank you. Thank you. I'm thinking that that second bar mitzvah, which we wouldn't have to make exactly at 83, everybody. I mean, that's just <laughs> is a it would be a is a beautiful concept for for a a communal a communal norm that at some point we honor our elders by giving them giving them the pulpit and honor them and let and hear what they have to share and you know. Um, uh, now it's like five years ago, Ellen organized the, um, what, what do we call it? Oh, Simchat Chaim, Rejoicing in Life, uh, where we honored a whole bunch of members who are over 80 and posted their pictures in the lobby and stuff. Yes, thank you for everything you've done with that. I want to do more. Uh, yeah. Yes, Patricia. Esther? Esther? Esther said about how you didn't feel the way he was talking about. And what I was thinking was, it's like younger people. It's like you're 40 or you're 50. And they're they, like, it's Sid, Sid, my husband works at a school. And it's just the thing that, you know, I, 
thinking it's 50. You know, they have black balloons. I mean, it's yes. just such an awful... Wait, if you turn 50, they give you black balloons? Yes. 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 What? And had she cut before when he tried to... My husband's getting older, so there's this whole part in between, right, where you're getting older and people feel terrible about it. I mean, it's just depressing. I've gotten to the point where I, I always say, better than, you know, I'd rather be this age than be dead. I mean, wake up. And what kind of say, thing is that to have to say? Right, but that's, that, I mean, black balloons, I mean, like, just, you know, it's depressing to be older. You're trying not to be. So no wonder when you get a point where you actually can't do some things, that's really depressing because you faked it all along that nothing's changed and you're not even looking at the positive side oh. of like not having tiny children. And good things, you know? <laughs> 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 like no positive looking. Thank you, thank you. Everyone's expressing themselves beautifully. Phoebe, yes. Just as it reminds me, my mother, when she was getting older, said something that has always stayed with me. She said it comforted her to think she was looking out of the same eyes she had looked out as a child. Mm. Mm. What a fascinating thought. That's beautiful. Mm. Nate. One of the things that I've enjoyed doing over the years is I do. I've gone into a lot of uh, nursing homes and so on doing rhythm programs. And it's amazing when you tap in to uh, the music or something inside of people that they don't, that they've <coughs> been dormant for a while. And all of a sudden, uh, it comes out again. And to see their faces and they come alive, it's really quite astounding. It is. You know, when you see them, uh, playing a drum that they never did before and they can do, you know, and they'll come up and say, oh, I used to you know, be a piano player, I used to, and so, oh, and it's, it's about that they want to be, you want to be alive, you want to be musical, you want to have fun, you want to, uh, and you just need the, the something to bring it out, mm -hmm. you know, and once that's brought out, they dropped 20 years. When do we want to not celebrate? Why do we forget to celebrate life? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's another factor. Lori? I think this ties in so well with the, the taboo about talk, not talking about aging is the taboo of not talking about dying. Yeah. And so the movements have been in parallel, more or less. Yeah. That we had hospice in this country in the early 70s and mm -hmm. whatever else we're doing here. Um, I think if people recognize that as soon as we're born, we're dying, and that we don't know when we're going to die, and like some of our parents died when, when they were younger, we could also die when we're younger, we don't know when. And I just have to say about what Jerome said about Medicare, because we cannot accept the fact that we're dying, or our children cannot accept the fact that we're dying, they will say to the doctor, do whatever you can do, yes. which taps into the Medicare funding, into the budget, and in the last six months of people's lives is when most of the money is spent, even though they were most likely terminal. So until we can accept the fact that we're aging and we're dying at the same time, then we're not living fully because we think, well, I'll do it next year. I'll do it, you know, I'll talk to her in six months. So I think that this is a wonderful conversation and that we all 
can take it into our lives when we walk out of here mm. to recognize that the person you're speaking to now might not be here tomorrow. I mean, we all have experienced something like that. And I think it's extremely exciting when I live that way. Yes. a different quality to my life than if I was in this balloon of, oh, everything's fine, I have a life. Thank you. So here's what that these comments are making me think about. Two, two tracks, and again, I'm here processing along with you as I figure life out. Um, one is that uh, clearly for me, reaching this stage of life is when it finally gets real for me that I'm not going to live forever, right? Um, and what do I have to adjust so that I can live joyously with that Aware, full awareness, which is just the truth, right? And uh, for me, that would be the uh, wisdom of an elder. Um, and for me, therefore, everything I've done up to my, this point in my life to um, accept what I cannot change and change the things I can and have the wisdom to know the difference is all preparing me to be able to continue to live with some grace. Uh, but it's also making me think about, I've been, I've been blessed with being very, with being completely able-bodied my whole life. Um, you know, poo-poo-poo, as my mother would say, like, <laughs> my health has been rather remarkable. And um, so I can fake being young still, you know, I can, I can, I can in some way, uh, uh, and it's fun, but, <laughs> But I'm thinking again about, Mark, uh, you know, people who've, who've lived with physical disability, with other kinds of disability, haven't had to recognize their limitations all along. It becomes a source of wisdom and understanding that uh, circumstances force upon you. That's what I'm thinking about. And getting old, for anyone who gets that far, those are the circumstances that are finally going to get forced upon you, too. I'm just thinking about that. Well, yes, Esther? What I think about all the time is quality of life. Mm -hmm. How, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I mean, no. How can I preserve the quality of life in which I'm fairly independent? I still drive my car. I still can come here and have coherent conversations. What do I need to do to preserve that? I... I know I'm aging, that's not a mystery to me. I live with that, but I also live feeling that whatever I can do to view my world and myself as, as being a person who is continuing to see possibilities in her life is a good thing. I, I don't, I, I reject the list. I think that that's, that's depressing. Oh, the list of what I can't do anymore. Exactly. Uh -huh. Exactly. Why do you reject what you can't Well, I know what I can't do. But then what? what but then I know what I need to do to be able to go on. That list of what I can't do doesn't work for me. I would rather have a list of, of what I need to do so that I can be healthy. Why can't you have it all? Pardon me? <laughs> no, she's just saying she's not going to be preoccupied with that no, list. Not yeah. Preoccupied yeah. when you said you reject it. Is well, well no. no, she's not ignoring it. No. I'm not ignoring it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be ignoring it. But, you know, I think you have to 
be realistic where you are and then go from there. Right. You know why I said that so strongly? My mother often used this Yiddish phrase. I'll translate it. What I have to hear it in Yiddish first. That was my mother's motto. So every time I found, I couldn't take that extra step. Oh, wait, we have to say what it says now. You have to translate it now. Yeah, I don't understand. If you want to, you can. And if you don't want to, you can't. And it has still haunts me. I still have trouble with things that I know is not good for me to do. Yeah. I have a very hard time accepting it because I keep hearing, you really can do it. Oh, oh, another. You really can. Uh-huh. You really want to. If you wanted to. If you yeah. wanted to. Uh, oh, if you really wanted to. Yeah, yeah the article yeah. in the New York Times Magazine about the people who are planning to live forever. Uh, yeah. I read that article. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Barb? Bob and I took a course at Bard in the lifetime, lifetime learning, lifelong learning program, and it was called Finding Purpose, Passion, and Meaning in the later part of your life. And it was really wonderful. There were, everybody was, uh, you know, aging. And um, there were people, you actually had to figure out how many days of your life you have left based on the average. Uh-huh. And there were people, there were people who had minus days yeah, left. Right, yeah. <laughs> oh, based on the actuarial table? Oh. So they, they were they, there, that was all gravy then. <laughs> they were all there being excited about what possibilities they were. So it was a great course. Yeah. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Uh, Lori? So for those of you who are in this place of examining your life and your future, or holding a death cafe in the Woodstock Jewish Congregation on May 23rd at 7 o'clock at night. It's free, it's open to the public. We have conversations about dying, death, grief, bereavement, aging, illness, whatever you want to talk about. It's a safe place, it's confidential, and we've been do- this will be our 39th one that we've done. We've been doing it for over four years. And we'll, we'll have flyers uh, when you get those flyers printed. Yeah. Well, let's read a little more. I want to read um, down at the bottom of 71. Let's take it from there. There's one sentence above. Oh, yeah, what do you want to hear? The fear of being considered old has become a traumatic obsession. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which paragraph was that in? The third paragraph up. Right in the middle of the page. Oh, okay. The paragraph that starts with the gray hair. A gray hair may destroy the chance for promotion, may cost a salesman his job. Still true. He was in his um, mid 50s when this, and he died at age 65 of a, a heart attack. So, um, only very few people are endowed with the rare and supreme courage to admit their true age without embarrassment. With the rest of us, courage and honesty go underground when the question of age is discussed. The most delightful resolution the White House Conference on Aging could pass would be to eliminate from now on any mention of the date of birth from the birth certificate. <laughs> or, or when I'm filling out my information with the drop-down of what year were you born, and I'm going like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it takes longer to scroll down. Wait, where is it? It's down here. <laughs> A vast amount of human misery, as well as enormous cultural and spiritual damage, is due to these twin phenomena of our civilization, the contempt for the old and the traumatic fear of getting old. Monotheism has acquired a new meaning. The one and only thing that counts is being young. Youth is our God, and being young is divine. This is a lot of truth in this, always. 
To be sure, youth is a very marvelous thing. However, the cult of youth is idolatry. Boy, it literally is when you consider the plastic uh, yeah. surgery industry, the billions and billions of dollars spent on preserving yourself as an image of youth. Or quote-unquote anti-aging cream. Anti-aging cream. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. That's right. As if you could actually Just the word anti-aging. Right. Anti-aging. Right, so that is really, that really is a form of idolatry in the most literal sense, as you worship your form uh, and try to preserve it in a way that'll never, when your fact is impossible. Um, Abraham is the grand old man, but the legend of Faust is pagan. Oh. A revision of attitudes and conceptions is necessary. Old age is not a defeat, but a victory. Not a punishment, but a privilege. In education, we stress the importance of the adjustment of the young to society. Our task is to call for the adjustment of society to the old. And I, I made note, I, I marked these next few paragraphs. I, I like them, let me read them. By what standards do we measure culture? It is customary to evaluate a nation by the magnitude of its scientific contributions or the quality of its artistic achievements. However, the true standard by which to gauge a culture is the extent to which reverence, compassion, and justice are to be found in the daily lives of a whole people, not only in the acts of isolated individuals. Culture is a style of living compatible with the grandeur of being human. The test of a people is how it behaves toward the old. It is easy to love children. Even tyrants and dictators make a point <laughs> of being fond of children. <laughs> but the affection and care for the old, the incurable, the helpless are the true gold mines of a culture. We maintain that all men are created equal, including the old. What is extraordinary is that we feel called upon to plead for such equality, in contrast to other civilizations in which the superiority of the old is maintained. In our own days, a new type of fear has evolved in the hearts of men, the fear of medical bills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is pre just before Medicare. This is before Johnson. Even with Medicare. I know, I'm just saying, can you imagine as... Uh, and but... In, but then the solution in our nation was so piecemeal as to not, no. In the spirit of the principle that reverence for the old takes precedence over reverence for God, we are compelled to confess that a nation should be ready to sell, if necessary, the treasures from its art collection and sacred objects from its houses of worship in order to help one sick man. Is there anything as holy, as urgent, as noble as the effort of the whole nation to provide medical care for the old? I'm imagining in 1961, this debate was on the table, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it was, it was interesting because Eisenhower is leaving, which is like right before the inauguration, right? January. That's right. And our youngest president ever at that time is coming in. That's right. true. So it's a real yeah. transition here in yeah. our whole cultural and political life. But even health insurance is a relatively new idea. Post Johnson, right? Who signed it? Yes, 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 yes. But as you can see, we all know it takes many years for legislation to get through the pipeline, and then, if lucky, get approved. So, uh, just as um, 
you know, the the idea. You know, I've talked to my kids a lot about this, about what the the political question at hand in the states is: what is a nation's a government's responsibility to its citizens? You know, is what's a government's job? And uh, right, and here the and the you know the the prevailing wisdom since the New Deal, the prevail that you know that one was that. The government's job is to care for the least of its citizens, right? And uh, that certainly aligns with Jewish teachings. I mean, it's not even it's up for not even up for debate. Um, uh, so now, as health insurance is becoming more ubiquitous, now the idea of a, a national health care like Medicare was on the table, and we're still fighting that battle. Um, this is one of the great biblical insights. Hey, see you soon. The needs of suffering humanity are a matter of personal as well as public responsibility. The representatives of the community are held responsible for the neglect of human life if they have failed to provide properly for those in need. The ancient sages realized that it was not enough to rely upon individual benevolence and that care for the sick was a responsibility of the community. So for Heschel, and I agree with him, from a perspective of Jewish values, national health care is aligned with it, right? I mean, I'm not making a political argument here, but um, if you think that government has a role in caring for its citizens, if you don't, you don't think that's the role of government, then we're in another, it's another set of questions. But from the Jewish perspective, the collective was always responsible for the well-being of each individual, which is why the sages said, one who saves a single life is as though they've saved an entire world. One who destroys a single life, it's, they have destroyed an entire world. The, there is no, or the story that uh, Jerome reads on Yom Kippur every year, when uh, uh, the um, um, Levi Yitzchak of Berdachev is, is debating with God on Yom Kippur to forgive all of humanity. And he's close to success when he hears a cry and he looks down in his sanctuary from the heavenly heights and sees Chaim the washerman who's fainted from hunger. And Levi Yitzchak realizes, oh God, I forgot to end Yom Kippur. Uh, and he leaves. And the angels of the heavenly court are saying to him, Levi Yitzchak, um, uh, don't go, you know, you were about to save the world. And he says, and who says the, the saving the world is worth the life of Chaim the washerman? That's the, and at that, and he left. And then the angels called after him, Levi Yitzchak, you are saving the world. Great story. Jonathan, some years ago you gave, I don't remember what the name of the class was, but you used a book, and I forgot the author's name, about morality. In fact, he wrote a book, uh, he's written several books about the, the politicization of that morality that says you're a jerk if you care for other people. You have to raise your family to be independent, self-sufficient, Yeah. take care of yourself. And those people who are on welfare are just unwilling to take responsibility. And that's their morality. Right. And that's carried through. Oh, right. This is a book by George Lakoff. Lakoff. I couldn't think yeah. of it. Yeah, it's a really exactly a, worthwhile book. Very Verges from the Jewish tradition. It, um, it does. It just does. 
except that their morality in terms of their in-group is clear. They will care for their in-group. Oh, yeah. That's they just don't... They, that morality says it's not the government's responsibility to do that. So they reject the idea of a collective right. safety net right. as, as a moral value. They don't think that's... The, so it's just different ways of organizing. Well, but it doesn't... It doesn't... It, it, <laughs> <laughs> you disagree. No, it's different. It's a very, mm-hmm. very it is different. different. Mm-hmm. Except when you encounter folks who have that worldview and you need their help and you're in their sphere, you get it. Oh. You see. I've heard even more generous. Uh, so I don't want to condemn. I think. Uh, you want to be more generous with them. Uh, no, no, no. I think we should need to be a little, less, little less generous with ourselves. Uh, um, that's a longer discussion, but. I didn't mean to discuss it. Right. I just meant that this is a morality that is often disputed by people who feel very clear that um, responsibility has to end here. Right. So, who is Heschel? He's a public Jewish intellectual and spiritual leader. So, he is unabashedly taking his view. Yeah and applying it to public policy and to uh, the life of the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that exist today? What? People like that exist today? That's a good question. The role of the public intellectual, um, do we have it anymore? Sure. Sure. The New York Review of Books and other journals have followed The New York Review of Books. The Nation. Okay, it's a good question I think Ron's asking. I think the esteemed role of the public intellectuals more than the uh, political commentators, uh, I think there's been a shift. Um, that doesn't mean it's evaporated, but yeah, I think it's changed. Jonathan Sachs? Right, he's established himself. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is establishing himself in that role. Yes, there's plenty, but the question is what, what uh, acknowledged place, just like the prophets in ancient Israel had an acknowledged place in that society, and their task was to critique the halls of power. And they were honored for it, even while people hated their guts. It's like, that was a, pro, uh, you know, it's, some, it's a corrective that a society needs. Um, and think tanks become uh, more and more politicized, more and more tendentious, you know, it's like, it's a good question. Good question. So um, let's see. Uh, let's turn ahead. Um, look on page 75. You can read this at home, uh, but we're going to go towards the latter part of it. He says on 75, well, let's look on 74 in the middle, um, where it says, Modern man has discarded ritual, failed to learn the art of prayer, but found a substitute for both in occupational routine. He severed relations to God, to the cosmos, even to his people, but became engrossed in the search for success. The excitement of success took the place of inspiration. Upon his retirement from labor or business, games and hobbies, the country club or golf, take the place of church, synagogue, ritual, and prayer. This, then, is the fact. Hobbies have become a substitute for ritual. 
not only for work. <coughs> Should we not clearly distinguish between recreation as a substitution and recreation as a solution? Authentic human existence includes both work and worship, utilization and celebration. We have a right to consume because we have the power to celebrate. The man of our time is losing the power to celebrate. Instead of participating in spiritual celebration, he seeks to be amused or entertained. More than ever. Upon reaching the summit of his years, man discovers that entertainment is no substitute for celebration. Then he says, what are the basic spiritual ills of old age? Number one, the sense of being useless to and rejected by family and society. Two, the sense of inner emptiness and boredom. And three, loneliness and the fear of time. And then he uh, goes on to analyze these. Um, and uh, let's look at um, page, let's see, uh, 77, okay? The sense of inner emptiness and boredom. Old age often is an age of anguish and boredom. The only answer to such anguish is a sense of significant being. The sense of significant being is a thing of the spirit. Stunts, buffers, games, hobbies, slogans, all are evasions. What is necessary is an approach, a getting close to the sources of the spirit. Not the suppression of the sense of futility, but its solution. Not reading material to while away one's time, but learning to exalt one's faculties is the answer. Not entertainment, but celebration. Uh, let's see, I just am thinking about the time. More birthday parties. Those are the divine. Well, but also, I'm being reminded of when we were in Israel this year, I read a Jerusalem Post article on an organization there to support um, survivors of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most of whom are in Israel, all of whom are very elderly, a lot of them extremely elderly, and a lot of whom never had children and don't have families, and a lot of whom have, lost them. Have, have always been a sense of isolation. And the, the article was talking about the hundred and something birthday for one man that this volunteers and like 80 people came to mm -hmm. and made a birthday party. Oh, that's lovely. Mm -hmm. That's great. I, I think he, there, there's one uh, on page 77. Page 77, yeah. To attain a sense of significant being, we must learn to be involved in thoughts <laughs> that are ahead of what we already comprehend, to be mm -hmm. involved in deeds that will generate higher motivations. And I think for me, um, that is especially true. As I come to this class and I come to the Torah class, I call it food for my brain. Because uh. it's so stimulating. It engenders so many thoughts. And this is probably a new experience for me to be as involved as I am. And then he goes on to write at the bottom of the page, significant being is not measured by the amount of needs that agitate a person, but by the intensity and depth of the response to a wisdom in relation to which my mind is an afterthought by the discovery that the moment to come is an anticipation and expectation waiting to receive my existence. I think that's really mm, beautiful. Yeah. 
this isn't new by, uh, this isn't a new thought that he's coming up with. No. Men have said this all through right. the ages. Mortimer, most recently, Mortimer Adler had a book some years ago, uh, the time, uh, Times of Our Life, Time of Our Life, or Best Time of Our Life, or something to that effect, where he states basically... Absolutely, absolutely. This, Aristotle said the same thing. Right, and, and Heschel would be the first to say that. Right, he's, uh, he's not trying to, uh, to... He's just trying to express it. Um, uh, so, um, turn the page to 78. And look at the third paragraph, uh, the one that says, Our work. Our work for the advanced in years is handicapped by our clinging to the dogmatic belief in the immutability of man. We conceive of his inner life as a closed system, as an automatic, unilinear, irreversible process which cannot be altered, and of old age as a stage of stagnation into which a person enters with his habits, follies, and prejudices. To be good to the old is to cater to their prejudices and eccentricities. May I suggest that man's potential for change and growth is much greater than we are willing to admit, and that old age be regarded not as the age of stagnation, but as the age of opportunities for inner growth. That's his key here, which I wanted to get to. Uh, the old person must not be regarded as a patient, nor regard his retirement as a prolonged state of resignation. The years of old age may enable us to atten attain the high values we failed to sense, the insights we have missed, the wisdom we ignored. They are indeed formative years, rich in possibilities to unlearn the follies of a lifetime, to see through inbred self-deceptions, to deepen understanding and compassion, to widen the horizon of honesty, to refine the sense of fairness. One ought to enter old age the way one enters the senior year at a university, in exciting anticipation of consummation, rich in perspective, Experienced in failure, the person advanced in years is capable of shedding prejudices and the fever of vested interests. He does not see any more in every fellow man a person who stands in his way, and competitiveness may cease to be his way of thinking. <coughs> I'm experiencing that as I get older. I'm not, yeah, the, the game is changing. At every home for the aged, there is a director of recreation in charge of physical activities. There ought to be also a director of learning in charge of intellectual activities, which is happening more and more. But he's also talking about spiritual well-being, much more than intellectual. I think those two terms are, can be confusing here. What the nation needs is senior universities, universities for the advanced in years where wise men should teach the potentially wise, where the purpose of learning is not a career, but where the purpose of learning is learning itself. Exactly. Well, that's the whole rise of, of these LLI places beautiful, beautiful. the country. Yeah. Education for retirement. The goal is not to keep the old man busy, <laughs> but to remind him that every moment is an opportunity for greatness. Inner purification is at least as important as hobbies and recreation. The elimination of resentments, 
of residues of bitterness, of jealousies and wrangling, is certainly a goal for which one must strive. And so only very few people realize that it is in the days of our youth that we prepare ourselves for old age. Because he's speaking about the spiritual dimension here, not actually the intellectual or the physical. Bye, Miriam. Uh, not the intellectual or the physical. Um, this is an imperative we must be conscious of even in youth. Prepare spiritually for old age and learn how to cultivate it. The ancient concept equation of old age and wisdom is far from being a misconception. However, age is no guarantee for wisdom. A Hebrew proverb maintains that a wise old man, the older he gets, the wiser he gets. A vulgar old man, the older he gets, the less wise he becomes. Uh, <clears throat> I'm thinking of one vulgar old man in particular. People, people are anxious to save up financial means for old age. They should also be anxious to prepare a spiritual income for old age. That ancient principle, listen to the voice of the old, becomes meaningless when the old have nothing meaningful to say. Wisdom, maturity, tranquility do not come all of a sudden when we retire from business. We must begin teaching in public schools about the virtues that come to fruition with the advance in years, about the wisdom and peace that arrive in old age. Reverence for the old must be an essential part of elementary education at school, and particularly at home. Education for retirement is a lifelong process. And that's one of the things that grandparents and parents teach the younger generations by living by example. By, by example. Mm -hmm, that's right. One of the major ills of old age, as well as one of the roots of the general fear of old age, is the fear of time. Now, this is one of Heschel's themes in his writing, in his writing and teaching. Uh, he reflects on the nature of time a lot. You, some of you will be familiar with some of what he's saying here. It is like living on a craggy, on a craggy ridge over a wide abyss. Time is the only aspect of existence which is completely beyond man's control. He may succeed in conquering space. Oh, we're all popular. <laughs> He may succeed in conquering space, in sending satellites around the moon, but time remains immune to his power. A moment gone by, not even General Motors can bring back. <laughs> Being used to dealing with things he can manage, the encounter with time is the most stunning shock that comes to man. In his younger years, he is too busy to react to it. It is an old age that time may become a nightmare. We are all infatuated with the splendor of space, with the grandeur of things in space. Thing is a category that lies heavy on our minds, tyrannizing all our thoughts. Our imagination tends to mold all concepts in its image. In our daily lives, we attend primarily to that which the senses are spelling out for us to what the eyes perceive, to what the fingers touch. Reality to us is thinghood, consisting of substances that occupy space. Even God is conceived by most of us as a thing. The result of our thingness is our blindness to all reality that fails to identify itself as thing. 
as a matter of fact. This is obvious in our understanding of time, which, being thingless and insubstantial, appears to us as if it has no reality. Indeed, we know what to do with space, but we do not know what to do about time, except to make it subservient to space, or to while it away, to kill time. However, time is life, and to kill time is murder. <laughs> Most of us seem to labor for the sake of things in space. As a result, we suffer from a deeply rooted dread of time and stand aghast when compelled to look into its face. Time to us is sarcasm, a slick, treacherous monster with a jaw like a furnace, incinerating every moment of our lives. Shrinking, therefore, from facing time, we escape for shelter to things of space. The intentions we are unable to carry out, we deposit in space. Possessions become symbols of our repressions, jubilees of frustrations. But things of space are not fireproof. They only add fuel to the flames. Is the joy of possession an antidote to the terror of time, which grows to be a dread of the inevitable death? Things, when magnified, are forgeries of happiness. They are a threat to our very lives. We are more harassed than supported by the Frankensteins of spatial things. Most of us do not live in time, but run away from it. We do not see its face, but its makeup. The past is either forgotten or preserved as a cliché, and the present moment is either bartered for a silly trinket or beclouded by false anticipations. The present moment is a zero, and so is the next moment, and a vast stretch of life turns out to be a series of zeros with no real number in front. Blind to the marvel of the present moment, we live with memories of moments missed, an anxiety about an emptiness that lies ahead. We are totally unprepared when the problem strikes us in unmitigated form. What I want to share about this is now Rabbi Heschel is moving beyond policy, right? He's moving beyond um, uh, intellectual issues. He's moving beyond to get to what for him is the heart of the matter, which is that the mastery in life that we can attain is the marvel of the present moment. If, if once, once I have, in my own trajectory, um, the fire of youth, right, my desires to make and do and accomplish, which are part of the human makeup, and then those fires begin to bank down, and I become aware of a different horizon if I live long enough, then the question becomes always a spiritual one. How do I live in time? Rather than how do I use time? How do I manipulate time? How do I save time? How do I, you know, it's like it's time is a commodity. And that's not bad, in my opinion. I mean, we all have projects we're deeply devoted to, and it's like a beautiful thing. And then at some point, if we live long enough, or if less circumstances presented to us, we have to face that accomplishing isn't our primary desire anymore. So then we have to have, that's what spiritual practices are about for me, is 
to learn how to not be, I thought this, um, this is a beautiful sentence, blind to the marvel of the present moment, we live with memories of moments missed, right? So we're living in the past, or an anxiety about an emptiness that lies ahead. Well, it lies ahead, <laughs> right? The past, we didn't accomplish it all. Here we are. That's, um, that's, that's, that's what it will boil down to over and over again. And then living in this moment as best we can with full appreciation allows us to love the one you're with. Whether it's a person or the blossoming dogwood outside, or, or, or. And that's not a surrender. That's a surrender, but not the kind of surrender to an enemy. That's a surrender to the glory of being alive. And what that gives you is that's where the source of wisdom is. And that's where love flows from. That's what, I, that's what I've been reflecting on as I, as I read him. Um, anyone want to? Well, we're, we can just sit in the present moment then. <laughs> Blessed. It's the confluence of space and time. Oh, lovely, lovely. And attention, where we put our attention. Uh, let me read on a little bit to get to uh, a paragraph that I think is very beautiful. Time is man's... Oh, it is impossible for man to shirk the problem of time. The more... Oh, we're in the middle of 81. It is impossible for man to shirk the problem of time. The more we think, the more we realize that we cannot conquer time through space. We can only master time in time. Time is man's most important frontier, the advanced region of significant being, a region where man's true freedom lies. Space divides us. Time unites us. We wage wars over things of space. The treasures of time lie open to every man. Yeah. Time has independent, ultimate significance. It is of more majesty and more evocative of awe than even a sky studded with stars. Yeah. How do you think about time? The ultimate mystery. This river of time that we're... It's astonishing. Gliding gently in the most ancient of all splendors, it tells so much more than space can say in its broken language of things. Playing symphonies upon the instruments of isolated beings, unlocking the earth and making it happen. Time is the process of creation. He's referring to time as process. And things of space are results of creation. When looking at space, we see the products of creation. When intuiting time, we hear the process of creation. Things of space exhibit a deceptive independence. They show off a veneer of limited permanence. Things created conceal the creator. It is the dimension of time wherein man meets God, wherein man becomes aware that every instant is an act of creation, a beginning, 
opening up new roads for ultimate realizations. Time, that is the awareness of process, is the presence of God in the world of space, and it is within time that we are able to sense the unity of all beings. Is this um, connecting with you? Do you follow what he's saying? Because he's using the word time, but what I'm connecting with is um, being aware. You know, the prayer book says, thank you for the miracles which are with us every morning, day, and night, and for your goodness, which perpetually renews the wonders of creation. And so that's the awareness of the present moment, when the world is a miracle, when every moment is a miracle. And he's going to say it in one of his most famous passages on 82. Time is perpetual presence, perpetual novelty. Every moment is a new arrival, a new bestowal. Therefore, just to be is a blessing. Just to live is holy. The moment is the marvel. It is, in, it is in evading the marvel of the moment that boredom begins, which ends in despair. How could you ever be bored in this world? Old age has the vicious tendency of depriving a person of the present because the agent thinks of himself as belonging to the past. But it's precisely the openness to the present that he must strive for. The marvel is discovered in celebration of the present. He who lives with a sense for the presence knows that to get older does not mean to lose time, but rather to gain time. And he also knows that in all his deeds, the chief task of man is to sanctify time. And all it takes to sanctify time is God, a soul, and a moment. And the three are always here. I want to pause there. So what starts out as an address at the White House Conference on Aging, look where he's taken his audience. Okay, he's not talking about public policy. He's not talking about how the old, young should treat the old. He's not. He's talking about to grow in wisdom. That's what he titled this talk. We all know that our greatest satisfactions, no, it's not even the right word, our greatest aliveness is when we manage to not be preoccupied with the past or anxious about the future, but engaged in, um, with a soul, a God, and this moment. That's the passage I really, I guess that's why I picked this article, because that's the passage I wanted us to, to get to. And, and just bless us all, because once we've had, and we all know this, as soon as we're in this moment, we have all the time in the world. Our anxieties disappear in that experience because we're tasting eternity. The paradox of time is that at its heart is eternity. And I... It's, a par it's the paradox. Mm -hmm. I'm um, 
when we forget about where we were or where we're trying to get to and instead give our attention to this moment, there's no shortage of time. It's completely a subjective perception that there's a shortage of time. We have infinite moments to celebrate. We're so blessed. That's religious awareness. Um, it's, religious awareness is not that there's a God in heaven who's looking after me. Religious awareness is that in the, in the sanctuary and the refuge of this present moment, I have everything I could ever possibly want or need. And I'm blessed with the grace that goes beyond any price, beyond rubies. And that's what I always want to, us to circle back towards as a spiritual community, as a synagogue. Because that's where we feel our true, unbounded riches. And then can act in the world without a sense of desperation or scarcity. We still act, but not driven by panic or anxiety. Because truly, the, the ultimate end result's out of our hands anyway. So as long as we're acting, we don't have to act driven by panic. We can act driven by love. And it'll be a lot more fun, a lot more fulfilling, a lot better for the people around us. And the place where we can touch that experience of eternity is in this moment. And if someone who, by virtue of physical disability of some not age-related or the relationship of age that slows us down. What an opportunity if we can frame it that way to love life even more. Blaze? You know, I just love the wisdom of this and the universality of it. Um, reading the line every moment is a new arrival is exactly what Ruby said in his poem, The Guest House. He says, every moment, a new arrival. And it's like the words are just so deep. You know, because if you're open to that moment, something is arriving every single instant. Every single instant. And usually, I'm not paying attention to what's arriving. Um, you know, even, even if we don't like what's arriving, it's still arriving, and that's the whole creation of arrival. You know, it's always arriving. Creation is always arriving. Always arriving. Always springing up. Always arriving. Right. Yes. And so, you know, that just could be my mantra of every day, every moment of your arrival, you know, to wake up to that and make that the mantra of the day and to be aware of that for a day is, mm -hmm. I mean, that's a big accomplishment. <laughs> That's, a, that's amazing. I'm grateful for ritualized opportunities, such as a class like this where we study a, a spiritual teacher like Rabbi Heschel or a service, so that I'm, I'm aiming towards that because I forget constantly out in my life. So that's why I really appreciate this because it won't, it'll, it'll, it'll diffuse and it'll fade a little in my attention. 
but I carry it with me thanks to these opportunities to do this with you. Yes, and he was a Jewish spiritual teacher, and they come in all shapes and sizes. And he was speaking in an idiom of the late 50s and early 60s, using words that may have shifted over time, but it's easier than penetrating words that were written 3,000 years ago. <laughs> Sometimes. Today would be mindfulness. Mindfulness is the current phrase. That's correct. That's correct. Um, there's another word that I would add into this that for me is my favorite word right now, which is curiosity. Mm-hmm. I just think it's, the, it's just a great word for me <laughs> because the opposite of fear wouldn't be faith in that case. The opposite of fear would be curiosity mm. as an antidote to anxiety and fear. That we, and this any meditation teacher will teach you to just look at your thoughts with curiosity. Look at the next moment. Examine the world with curiosity, for me, is another beautiful word for taking this approach. I mean, who's going to take away your curiosity? If you can cultivate it, when are you ever going to be bored? Um, Of course, that's an ideal, but uh, it's true. um, I've thought to myself for years, because that word is so dear to me, (laughs) that my goal is to stay alive as long as I can, and then when death comes, to approach it with total curiosity. Uh, since it's out of my hands anyway, whether, you know, I'm on the train, you know. Um, and that's what I'm thinking about too, as a way I might describe what I'm reading here. It's like what your mother does on her good days. On her good days, that's right. Interested. She's interested. Yes, yes. Marka? I, because this is so in line with Buber's project, I find it such a beautiful meditation to just walk around saying thou to things, because this is all about undoing the thinginess of things. It's like, when this table is just a table, it's dead, but when it's vibrational emergence in the moment, it's actually alive. Right, you want to perceive the process even in the table, right. Right. I I think what's interesting is when he was saying this, it was the same time Ram Das was saying the same thing. A few years before. Yeah. That's right. But he had to do it from a Buddhist perspective. Well, if Ramdas had gone to JTS and run into Heschel, he might never have gone to India. Right? But but the treasure you're seeking is never at home until you realize once you get back that it was here all along. In fact, in nineteen ninety three was that the year? Uh, that's when I met Carol Fox Prescott at the workshop I was teaching at, at a Jewish retreat center, Elat Chaim. And Ramdas was teaching a week at the Jewish retreat center. Because his name, you know, Ramdas is a Jewish guy. What was his name? Richard Alpert. Alpert. Richard Alpert. And I love Ramdas. And he was younger and he hadn't had a stroke yet. He was very well and healthy. And um, uh, though he too has used his stroke to slow me down? Well, what am I going to do about that? Mm -hmm. He's a remarkable guy. But it's just to say that when he was was a young man, the Jewish spiritual world hadn't blossomed the way it has today. And there we were some 30 years later, and he was participating in everything we were doing. He said, 
wow, <laughs> this is fun. And we had, uh, I had a, it was just a great experience getting to meet him, uh, enjoying Jewish life. It, it, something that, you know, he grew up in a, in, in a, uh, um, a well, a secular home, but also, you know, synagogues in the 40s and 50s were about uh, creating a safe and American identity for Jews. They weren't about, Heschel was, Heschel was, you should read, oh man, he gave the address, the keynote to the, uh, the conservative movement rabbis, the rabbinical association, at their convention one year in the 50s. Oh boy, does he take them to task. Oh my God. He says, I'm gonna, you know, it's really intense. So let's go to the very end and read the last paragraph. <clears throat> I'll start with there is no human being. There is no human being who does not carry a treasure in his soul. A moment of insight, a memory of love, a dream of excellence, a call to worship. In order to be a master, one must learn how to be an apprentice. Reverence for the old, dialogue between generations, is as important to the dignity of the young as it is for the well-being of the old. We deprive ourselves by disparaging the old. We must seek ways to overcome the traumatic fear of being old, the prejudice, the discrimination against those advanced in years. All men are created equal, including those advanced in years. <laughs> being old is not necessarily the same as being stale. The effort to restore the dignity of old age will depend upon our ability to revive the equation of old age and wisdom. Wisdom is the substance upon which the inner security of the old will forever depend. But the attainment of wisdom is the work of a lifetime. Old men need a vision, not only recreation. Old men need a dream, not only a memory. It takes three things to attain a significant sense of significant being, God, a soul, and a moment. And the three are always here. Just to be is a blessing. Mm. Just to live is holy. Mm. Amen. 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 Jerome. When I, after I had this heart valve put in, uh, my heart stopped. Oh, really? And the alarms went off and everybody gathered around. And it started again <laughs> a few seconds later. The baby gave me some uh, electric shock and all that. A few days later, a couple of days after that, Rabbi David Ingberg, who's an old friend from the Lock Iron, came in to visit. And I said, you know, Rabbi, I must have been dead for a few seconds, and I didn't see any lights, I didn't see any hall, I didn't see anything. He said, well, maybe you weren't there long enough. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the house lights were down. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Nathan? One of the places that I feel the moment more than here is when I'm in Israel. I feel that the people there are uh, maybe because of what's surrounding them and all, they live, they live a really full life for the moment. I really feel that. Isn't it interesting? I would I'd say you could generalize that in general, there's a lot more living in the moment 
uh, in, for many Israelis that I've met, uh, maybe by their sense, dictated by their sense of uh, the, the, the tenuousness of life. Of course, the flip side of that and the danger of living with, with so much tenuousness is that it can also make you anxious and like uh, adrenalized all the time. And so we all, you know, each of us in our own situation has to wrestle with that. But I'd say also for many Jewish Israelis, the sense of common purpose that still exists in Israel also gives a framework to life that's very sustaining, uh, despite all the difficulties. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank uh, you. I'll bring something else next week, if that's okay with you. Yeah. And yeah. we'll see where it takes us. I hope you're finding this as worthwhile as I am. Thank you. Thank you.